Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Second to last archive episode. You know what that means. I mean, it doesn't indicate that the next shows are super soon, but like sooner than ever before. And we've totally heard the first one. It's already locked down and everything. It's really, really good. I mean, not to toot our own horn or anything, but it's like some of our favorite stuff we've done. Anyway, you'll get to decide soon enough. This time, we've got more details on the broader JFK conspiracy world as it developed over decades after 1963, along with some of the cultural impacts, music, film, and beyond, that the assassination had on the way Americans viewed themselves. One more archive episode, and we're back on the new stuff. In response to the never-ending stream of conspiracist publications, which we noted earlier, many Americans, wisely deciding they didn't want to spend the rest of their lives parsing one obscure theory from another, threw up their hands and decided it was probably some conspiracy that did it, but who gives a shit which one? To quote Knight, The list of theories and suspects began to seem endless. Rioters blamed the CIA, the FBI, renegades from both agencies, the Secret Service, Dallas police, Cuban exiles, the mafia, Dallas oil millionaires, right-wing Texans, left-wing sympathizers, Corsican mafia, President Johnson, J. Edgar Hoover, Jimmy Hoffa, the military-industrial complex, the international banking cartels, the three hobos picked up in Dealey Plaza right after the shooting, and just about every combination of these groups. The spoof newspaper The Onion captured the sense of a frenzied overproduction of theories in their headline, Kennedy slain by CIA, Mafia, Castro, LBJ, Teamsters, Freemasons. President shot 129 times from 43 different angles. Seriously, though, writers have identified nearly 30 gunmen by name as the second, or, depending on the theory, third or fourth shooter at Dealey Plaza. Over the decades, the JFK conspiracy has, more than any other, become its own cloistered academic pursuit, with internecine battles among various sects, attacks, and counterattacks regarding points so absurd they resemble the battles of scholastic philosophy in the Middle Ages, asking how many angels can dance on the head of a pin instead of asking whether or not the angels, or even the pin, are there at all. We're far from the first to make an overtly theological comparison. In Case Closed, Professor Josiah Thompson notes that assassination buffs, especially the early Early ones were driven by an obsession, and that there's a fantastic way in which the assassination becomes a religious event. There are relics and scriptures, and even a holy scene, the killing ground. People make pilgrimages to it. Not only did the practice of JFK theorizing become increasingly strident and quasi religious in tone, it constantly added new layers of detail, disputation, and abstraction. Knight notes that even stepping into the ongoing debate over various theories requires so much specialized knowledge that it's deterred everyone but the most determined. And, as would be the case with a legitimate academic discipline, the sheer volume of information has led to ever-increasing specialization. 
These days, a dedicated researcher might focus all of her attention on just the Tippett murder, or only on the firearms involved in the events. Night again. As we have seen in much of the historical discourse on the assassination of JFK, the larger history is often displaced by a near-obsessive focus on small but seemingly symbolic details. And if you can't get enough of the theorizing from the endless stream of publications, forums, and other media, there are JFK conferences for you to attend. You can find all of the books and authors there, but also enjoy keynote speeches, packed quasi-informative sessions about the latest rabbit holes of minutiae that community is diving into, and of course you and your compatriots can, I don't know, exchange Marguerite Oswald's favorite sugar cookie recipes, or whatever. Posner points out that money has inevitably crept into this hobby of assassination research, which really is just awful. Can anybody remember when assassination scholarship was all about the pure, innocent love of ghoulishly combing through the moment-by-moment physics of a man's head exploding as the result of a rifle bullet's impact? Can we get back to those simpler days? Some of the most egregious examples are worth repeating. Dealey Plaza witnesses, at least so still walking around in the early 90s when Posner's book came out, sign autographs for cash, gawkers take paid tours of the key assassination sites, etc. Also, the trade in memorabilia is brisk. Oswald's toe tag from the morgue went for six grand, while the owner of Ruby's gun sold a limited edition of a few thousand bullets fired by it. The cost? A mere five bills each. How can you afford not to buy one? What's the outcome? As you might expect, a bunch of people who ignore and denigrate historical evidence in favor of their pet theories aren't exactly eager to come to a consensus. Thanks to what Knight calls an escalating complexity and incoherence, an infinite regress of suspicion, the best the organizers of a post-conference press release could get the majority of a group of researchers to agree to at the 35th anniversary conference was this. We believe these basic facts in the assassination of President Kennedy and the wounding of Governor John Connolly. There was more than one shooter. There has not been a true investigation of this crime by our government. The intelligence agencies did not give those investigations the information they should have. The assassination case is still open, and research should be ongoing. Pretty weak tea, considering what many of these folks are on the record as believing, no? And yet they couldn't agree with each other. Perhaps because, protestations to the contrary, many of them have built livelihoods on creating and deploying new theories into the field of rhetorical battle. No one wants the dance to stop, because then they'd have to go out and get real jobs. Perhaps that's why they will eagerly latch on to, say, the HSCA's conspiracy findings, but ignore the same body's strong, well-supported conclusions pointing to Oswald's guilt. Also, as Buliosi notes, While these people can't agree, you also don't see them truly picking apart each other's theories the way you would expect, again, from a true academic or historical discipline. But in order for one of these chuckleheads to be right, wouldn't all the others have to be wrong? Think about religion. If you want to know what's wrong with the Quran, ask a fundamentalist Christian. And the New Testament? Who is a learned mullah. Yet there doesn't seem to be a lot of internecine warfare here. The Mafia guys don't issue screeds attacking the conclusions of the CIA guys, for example. It's almost as if, as long as you don't accept the Warren report, you can be in the club. In real academic disputes, there are long, drawn-out, bitter wars over competing perspectives on, for example, the authorship of Shakespeare. Doesn't seem to be much of that in the conspiracy world. It would go a long way to convincing outsiders like us of the researchers' legitimacy if you could pick up a book by an Oswald was a Soviet plant guy that tore apart the weaknesses of some other Oswald was a completely innocent patsy guy. 
But beyond the commercialization and fetishization of the topic, night echoes are frequent claim, issued regularly to anyone who will stand still long enough for us to tell them about it, that Kennedy's assassination is, for many, essentially conspiracy theory table stakes. And more, it's the cornerstone of an entire unreal worldview. It's the gateway drug because, especially in its milder mafia or Cubans did it forms, it's just kind of an outre counterfactual historical argument, like, what if Hitler hadn't attacked Russia or other History Channel fodder? Night again. Yet theories about the Kennedy assassination have tended to become ever more elaborate, linking together a whole range of conspiracy fears into one grand unified field theory of conspiracy, in which Kennedy's death is claimed to be, say, part of a much larger chain of events that encompasses the other 1960s assassinations, Watergate the Iran-Contra scandal, and 9-11, or even a vast conspiracy to control all of human history, dating back centuries, led by the ultra-secret forces of the New World Order, in league with the Illuminati, international bankers, and little grey aliens. Some theories represent the enemy not in individual terms, but as an abstract system. Careful listeners will find an echo of basically every topic we've covered in this series, in the preceding, as well as the topics for many future episodes. Kennedy and his uniquely violent public death is the thing that connects all of them together in the minds of many adherents, which inevitably brings us back to the crazies. Many of the most prominent figures in the JFK conspiracy world are, as we've seen, fairly weird people. One need look no further than Garrison, and listening to the godfather of the movement, Mark Lane, was described by Wesley Lieberer, a lawyer for the Warren Commission, as being incredible. He talks for five minutes, and it takes an hour to straighten out the record. But there's plenty of even more delicious nut bar to enjoy from this group. For example, longtime researcher Jim Mars has suggested that because Oswald's attitude changed after a turn in the brig during his stint in the Marines, since he was more morose and angry, this may be evidence that he was, in fact, replaced during this period by an identical doppelganger. The fuck you say? Yep. Because that's obviously the simplest explanation. This line of inquiry came to a head when another conspiracist author convinced Marina Oswald to have her husband's body exhumed in 1981, his having convinced her that the person interred there was an imposter. Turned out the body was, in fact, Oswald. Not, of course, that this ended the speculation. Case Closed mentioned that some conspiracists claimed the body of the real Oswald was secretly placed into the imposter's grave before said exhumation. Posner's also got some juicy details on one conspiracist named Lifton, who spent over a decade writing his tome, Best Evidence. During the 60s, Lifton did his own photographic enhancements of grassy knoll shots, concluding that one of the trees had been artificial on the day of assassination, in order to camouflage snipers. In his enhancements, Lifton believed he had spotted a man in a Kaiser Wilhelm helmet, one with an electronic headset, one with a periscope, and another with a machine gun hidden in a hydraulic lift. He thought one of the men resembled General Douglas MacArthur. As we noted earlier, any historical event subjected to this level of scrutiny would have discrepancies. Buliosi's prosecutorial experience once again helps us here. He notes that any law enforcement veteran knows all too well that human memory being what it is, each eyewitness is likely to give a different description of the crime, the perpetrators, hell, even the police's own experts will make mistakes. Ignoring these realities, the almost unwavering modus operandi of the conspiracy theorists in this case has been to focus only on the inevitable discrepancies and inconsistencies arising out of the statement and works of hundreds upon hundreds of people, as if the discrepancies themselves prove a conspiracy 
never bothering to tell the readers, number one, what they believe precisely did happen, and number two, what solid and irrefutable evidence they have to prove it. I mean, do discrepancies and inconsistencies add up to life as we know it, or to conspiracy, as the theorists would want us to believe? Because the treatment of the Kennedy case has held a unique position in our culture over the past several decades, it's hard to imagine anything else taking up the same psychic space. But for a moment, let's imagine what it might look like if things had gone differently and another presidential assassin had been successful instead. Back to our show of hands, how many of you know that there was an attempt on President Gerald Ford's life? Wait, back up. Show of hands, how many of you youngins know that a guy by that name was once president? That few, huh? Well, he was. He was the VP who took over after Nixon resigned and who held on for a few years until he was beaten by Jimmy Carter in 76. He's notable for being the only president who was never elected either as president or vice president. Weird historical trivia point. Okay, back to the question, who knows that someone took a shot at him? That's not very many hands. How many of you know that in reality, two people took shots at him at different events within a few weeks of each other? That's what I thought. It's true, though, and they were both women, and both failed to even wing him. Karl Marx, Oswald's true beloved, is eminently quotable, and one of his most popular aphorisms is the observation that history repeats itself, first as tragedy, then as farce. Over the years, the Ford hijinks have come to be seen as the farcical replay of the traumatic 60s killings that so racked the nation. The two women responsible, Lynette Squeaky Fromm and Sarah Jane Moore, have become, at most, historical footnotes and trivia answers. But let's imagine for a second that we lived in a world where Kennedy was unscathed and Ford's assassins were successful, sending the country into mourning for our 38th president instead of our 35th. In other words, imagine the scrutiny aimed at Oswald was instead applied to Frum and Moore. What might motivated, conspiracy-friendly researchers uncover about them? For example, both of these women made their assassination attempts in California. Who was responsible for advising President Ford to return so quickly to a state filled with anti-Ford sentiment? Who wanted more to finish the job that Frum had screwed up? Oh, and did we mention that Mrs. Frum got her nickname because she was part of the Manson family? Yeah, it's true. Not only was she one of the weirdos outside the courtroom when Manson and co. were on trial, but she was also staying in a completely different house years later when every other person in that house was arrested in connection with a murder charge. But not her. Why? Did she have powerful friends? Even then, were they moving the pieces into place for a ludicrous failed attempt on a president mostly remembered for pardoning his predecessor and falling down some stairs? Also, Fromm met Jimmy Page in 75, which is super weird, isn't it? Maybe. Her reason for pointing a gun at Ford was some half-thought-through nonsense about protecting the trees, but there wasn't even a bullet in the chamber. Was this a false flag attack designed to focus attention on the Manson family and away from the radical Sarah Jane Moore? Hold on. Those are some pretty wild accusations. And what about Miss Moore? By the time of her 1975 attack, she had been divorced five times, with four children. Or was that just the convenient cover story her shadowy handlers gave her? She was fascinated by Patty Hearst, and that heiress's 1974 kidnapping and eventual embrace of the leftist revolutionary Symbionese Liberation Army. Maybe the whole Patty Hearst affair was all designed ahead of time to trigger Sarah Moore's 
previously embedded hypno programming. Maybe shooting Ford was actually a cover. The only person she actually hit was a taxi driver named John Ludwig. Has anyone really explored that guy's background? Was he a spy? Did he have mafia connections? What don't they want us to know about John Ludwig? How much more of this are we going to suffer through? A little bit more. Did you know the guy who grabbed her gun and may have saved Ford's life is a man named Oliver Sippel, a gay closeted Marine whose private life was exposed and whose relationship with his family was ruined as a result of his heroic actions? This doesn't have to do with a conspiracy, but this guy is an American hero who was the victim of a homophobic society, and we just wanted to raise a toast to his memory. Did you know Ms. Moore escaped from prison in 1979? I hear she was just trying to find some safety so she could reveal the real conspirators, but unfortunately she was recaptured within a few hours and never got the chance to tell her story. Eventually, she apologized for her supposed actions to secure her release. No doubt, these faceless bastards had threatened her life every single day of her imprisonment until she cracked. Okay. Christ, you made your point. Anyway, we're not going to belabor our point anymore. But keep the preceding in mind the next time you hear a bunch of weird coincidences being used to bolster an evidence-free conspiracy theory. Given the assassination's centrality to so many stories of what it meant to be an American in the latter half of the 20th century, it's obvious that it would serve as a touchstone for art and media of all kinds. Knight notes that debating about the specifics of the flavor of conspiracy, or non-conspiracy you subscribe to, has become a shorthand for a way of arguing about the significance of Kennedy's legacy and the meaning of the 1960s more generally. Perhaps the first effort by an artist to contextualize the assassination took place the same evening as the assassination itself. The legendary, groundbreaking comedian Lenny Bruce went on stage as scheduled that night, but seemingly out of respect for the president, Bruce stood silently for a few minutes before saying, At this point, we should mention the fact that during the three years of the Kennedy administration, one of the most famous people in America was a comedian named Vaughn Mader, whose claim to fame was his remarkable impression of the young president. He released an anodyne satire album titled The First Family in 1962. It sold 7.5 million copies, the fastest-selling album before the rise of the Beatles. Seemingly nothing could stop the comet-like ascent of Von Mater's star. So long as Kennedy was in the public eye, his career was assured. Anyway, Fearful, what were you saying? Right. So anyway, Lenny Bruce finally, bravely, stepped up to the mic, and in the total silence of the comedy club, said these unforgettable words. Boy, is Von Mater fucked. (gasps) Yeah, that was ballsy. But he wasn't the last comedian who would comment on these events. Official paranoid strain hero Bill Hicks, a searing ahead of his time performer who was unfortunately susceptible to a conspiracist mindset, had his own opinions on Oswald. And you can actually go to the sixth floor of the school book depository. It's a museum. They have the window set up to look exactly like it did on that day. And it's really accurate, you know. Because Oswald's not in it. It's true. It's called a sniper's nest. It's glassed in. It's got the boxes sitting there. And you can't actually get to the window itself. And the reason they did that, of course, they didn't want thousands of American tourists getting there each year going, No fucking way! I can't even see the road! Shit, they're lying to us! Fuck! As noted earlier in our interview, we've been to that museum too. But we don't think that the reason for keeping visitors out of the sniper's nest is any more nefarious than a natural history museum placing a fence around the T-Rex so you can't climb on its skeleton. 
Peter Knight previously quoted The Onion's genius headline for its fake Day of Assassination edition, but it's had some other gems as well, including Poll. 68% of Americans believe Lee Harvey Oswald acted like asshole. And Area Man can remember exactly where he was, what he was doing when he assassinated John F. Kennedy. We are insanely jealous we didn't come up with both of those. In the world of music, there are tributes and references ranging from the sublime to the abysmal. Everyone knows the birds Roger McGuinn wrote, He was a friend of mine in honor of JFK. And hopefully everyone has heard Smokey Robinson or Marvin Gaye's haunting renditions of Abraham, Martin, and John. Anybody here see my old friend John? Can you tell me where he's gone? Oh, he freed a lot of people, but the good they die young. I just looked around at him. But the assassination was a touchstone for a wide range of transgressive punk and post-punk acts, including the legendary Misfits, the incomparable wedding present, and the phenomenal Camper Van Beethoven. Not to mention, of course, the entire output of the Dead Kennedys. Oh, and Seconds by the Human League offers a synth-heavy, still danceable take on the same material. Then there's the Sondheim musical Assassins, in which all of the assassins of earlier presidents gather to convince Oswald to kill the president rather than committing suicide. We're sure there's plenty to be gleaned from this, but we consulted the official Paranoid Strain guidance on musical theater, which clearly reads, Dana? Fuck musicals. It's the line right after fuck Nazis. So we don't have anything else to add here. There are also some well-intentioned but truly execrable efforts, led unfortunately by the killer, Jerry Lee Lewis with surely one of his worst songs ever, Lincoln Limousine. If he had ten million dollars, had the world right in his hand, but a twenty dollar rifle took the life of this great man. He had a lovely wife and two children seldom seen, but they shot him in the backseat of the Lincoln Limousine. 
Seriously, the man is a genius. At cousin marrying, potentially wife-murdering genius, but seriously, have you heard what made Milwaukee famous? Chills, we tell you. Last episode, we touched on the ways that movies have dealt with assassination conspiracies in the examples of Manchurian Candidate and Parallax View. But President Kennedy, as the first leader truly adapted to the video age, was a touchstone for uncountable films, beginning with Primary, a 1960 documentary about his victory over Democratic rival Hubert Humphrey in Wisconsin in the lead-up to the presidential election, continuing with PT-109, a 1963 pre-assassination hagiography based on the young president's exploits as the captain of the eponymous ship during World War II. Since his death, there have been films that focused on various aspects of his presidency, including the Cuban Missile Crisis story, 13 Days. But most of the focus has been on his assassination, often as the endpoint of a silly subplot, as when Stanley Goodspeed retrieves a secret microfilm at the end of The Rock. Honey, uh, you want to know who really killed JFK? Or in the cult classic Bubba Hotep, in which an elderly Elvis, having ended up in a nursing home after faking his death, befriends an African-American senior citizen who claims to be a still-surviving John Kennedy, his brain having been transferred to a new body to fool the conspirators. That's when they took a piece of my brain. They got it back in D.C. in that goddamn job. I got a little bag of sand up there now. Jack, uh, no offense, but President Kennedy was a white man. That's how clever they are. They dyed me this color all over. There are more serious treatments, of course, memorably the 1990s Clint Eastwood thriller In the Line of Fire, where the main character, an aging Secret Service agent, is motivated to stop a presidential assassin due to his guilt over failing to stop Kennedy's murder decades earlier. Plus, it gives Eastwood some of his best post-Dirty Harry one-liners. You make a choice there, too. Hmm? Do you really have the guts to take a bullet, Frank? I'll be thinking about that when I'm pissed. In their scheme by outlining the horrors that would arise should JFK enjoy a second term. They have several hundred million dollars and some of the best brains on earth to carry through. They have put together a powerful coalition of big city machines, labor, Negroes, Jews, liberals, and the press. That will make him unbeatable in 1964. Wait a minute, Professor. He's appointed Republicans to the Treasury, to the Navy. Another is head of the CIA. And Brother Bobby worked on Joe McCarthy's committee. The old man is further to the right than I am. Ancient history, Harold. The man's come out for cuts on the oil depletion allowance. He's stopping mergers under the Antitrust Act. He promises to close down 52 domestic and 25 overseas military bases. In the next few months, you're going to see JFK do the following. One, he's going to lead the black revolution instead of fighting it. Now, we all know what that means, don't we? Damn right, a white backlash. Federal troops backing up the blacks, blood in the streets. Two, he's going to try to put across a test ban treaty with the Russians. And three, he's going to try to pull out of Vietnam and turn Asia over to the communists. Ridiculous. The American public would never stand for that. Come on, Harold. Goddamned super genius and master of the documentary form Errol Morris did a wonderful short film for the New York Times about the legendary Umbrella Man, a figure in many conspiracy theories whose opening of an umbrella as the president passed, caught on the Zapruder film, was supposedly a signal to the many imaginary teams of shooters 
to initiate their violent business. Only, you know, it wasn't that. Well, I asked that the Umbrella Man come forward and explain this. So he did. He came forward and he went to Washington with his umbrella and he testified in 1978 before the House Select Committee on Assassinations. The open umbrella was a kind of protest, a visual protest. It wasn't a protest of any of John Kennedy's policies as president. It was a protest at the appeasement policies of Joseph P. Kennedy, John Kennedy's father, when he was ambassador to the court of St. James in 1938 and 39. It was a reference to Neville Chamberlain's umbrella. I, I read that and I thought, this is just wacky enough. It has to be true. And I take it to be true. What it means is that if, if you have any fact which you think is really sinister, hey, forget it, man, because you can never on your own think up all the non-sinister, perfectly valid explanations for that. 